out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, and this is going to be part two with my interview stroke conversation with the one-time member of Edsall Auctioneer. It is the one and only Ashley Horner, where we pick it up again. It was just a Zoom thing, so anyway, part two. Um, Yes, we get back to 1987, a fine year for music, one of the best, in fact. And um, we're talking about influential bands from the 80s. And one band from Minneapolis appears in our conversation. Yes, it's the one and only Huskadoo. Anyway, look, this is it. Um, Yes, after logging back in, we get back to the point of uh, the big influences in his and their life. Anyway, Ashley, take it away. So, yeah, so I going back, so I think Huskadoo were really important. I think Huskadoo and the go-betweens for the Edsels were really important. Um, Yes, uh, yes. because I remember John Peel playing that song. It was um, the single from Candy Apple Grey, which was some... Somehow, somewhere, God, I got sorry. To... Somehow, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. Well, and I heard it, went, oh my God, I got it. This is my band, you know, as you do. And then it was like the warehouse album, my God, you know. And I went to Glastonbury in '87, thinking, right, Husker do. And I turned up on the Friday, and they'd already played. And it's like, but I had tickets to go and see them in London on the Sunday, so I had to drive. They because they played. Did they play at the Astoria or something like that? After the well, after Glastonbury, was yeah, it? I I trucked down there in a slightly desperate way to see them, and I just called. I them. wish I had. I, I wish I had because uh, uh, Tom and Martin both hitched down to London for that gig, um, and and they hadn't really bitten me as hard by at that point, and then and then like all things like the Beatles, etc. Uh, I really got into Huskadoo after they no longer existed. Yes. Well, it was it was kind of interesting because that production is a little bit on the tinny side. I don't know what they've done, but it's very... Yeah, I, I mean, it. I mean the songs are brilliant, but I've got to say the production on that album is not... I don't yes, like so I can see why everyone likes the Candy Apple one. And yeah, I, Candy Apple is a great record. And I loved his solo albums. Well, and know. then I loved Sugar. I thought they, they were amazing as well. Yeah, and Sugar were brilliant live as, as well. And I think, so I think there was a little scene that partly came out of this love of Husker Do and Sensor Strings were part of that and Mega City 4 were part of that. Uh, there was a band called Drive from Burke and Edway, I think, who I really liked. And there were two, or th- there were three or four bands that, that sort of came up through that. And we were kind we weren't really part of that. We, because we kind of, like I say, we'd come more from quite a poppy, uh, pop. We were kind of poppy, but a bit dark. I mean, really, we wanted to be Echo and the Bunny Men, but we were nowhere near like good enough songwriters or musicians. Yeah. Um, but can you remember the NME used to bring out those um, seven inch singles? Yeah, yeah. Still and and, they, and and Husker Du had, you know, Ticket to Ride, didn't they, on one of them? And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also they did, did an amazing version. High and stuff eight. like that. And so they had, a, I think, Bob Mould and uh, Grant Hart had a real sort of pop 60s sensibility, didn't they? But just... Yeah, they, yeah, they did. They did. They did. And, and you know, and Grant, Grant Hart, bless him, uh, rest in peace. I mean, I, he wrote some cracking pop songs, some absolutely cracking pop songs. And... Uh, um, yeah, fascinating. Yes, they were just... 2541, a fine epitaph. Yes. Uh, but, but yeah, I think when... when the, the other band that really came in and bit, bit me hard was R.E.M. in those early days. Was and that so the, we, I think... Was that on the IRS 
label period. Yes, the first five, the first five albums, really. Um, and I didn't get into again a lot of these bands. I didn't get into until I met Aiden. Aiden had this massive, well, compared to me, had a massive record collection and this what I considered quite quite eclectic taste. Although as we're talking about all the same bands, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but eclectic for a seventeen-year-old, um, and uh, yeah. I went from like the Beatles and lots of reggae to suddenly, well, I've never listened to Bob Dylan or anybody like, like that. And suddenly I, there was like all of this music around. Uh, Aidan's dad was, he was a painter and a, I think he was a lecturer at the university. And um, their house was just full of stuff that I'd never heard of or yes. seen. And, well, it, and it became an education, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because I was in an interview the other night with somebody, I can't remember, but they were talking about their children and they just, they look at music quite differently. They just kind of pick bits from whatever decade ever seen, you know, what they've heard on the film, what they've seen on TikTok. <clears throat> so they don't, you know, when I was going, I didn't have to go that far back in music, but, you know, we went, oh, I must do this period and this period. And, and now I feel yeah. like I've, I've got quite a good education, you know, ish. I'm a bit crap with modern music, really. But, you know, with, with younger people, you think, oh, that's 60 years now when the Beatles, oh, and the, yes, the Stones started to appear. But I don't think they go back and then go all the way back through, do they? They just literally pick Well, that, that's the thing. Like, when, when it was the mid-'80s and you were looking back at the late-'60s, that was only 16 years. Yes. And we're actually talking about a period that's how long ago? Eight, C86? Uh, I don't know what year it is. So that would be, yeah, it'll be 30, 35, 35 years ago now. Okay, so. 35 years ago. So uh, something that I should mention to you, we were, uh, so we would hitch down to London and stuff for gigs. And when C86 came out as a cassette and they set up that thing at the ICA where everybody played, uh, there were like five nights at the ICA which I'm sure you know all about, et cetera. Yeah. We all hitched down to, to London and went to every night. There you go. And we were like, I was 17 or something like that. I know, that's what we did. I can't believe we got tickets. I don't know how we got tickets. <laughs> uh, 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 we didn't go to the night when, when Stump played, I have to admit, which is, uh, you know, they, they weren't really doing it for me. But, um, yeah, we went to every other night and, and, and we would sleep on the streets afterwards because we didn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> God, that is so hardcore, isn't it? Well, it, well, it, it was just an adventure in retrospect, but like, but, it, but, it, but like, also in retrospect, it does sound pretty hardcore. So, we, so, so Valerie and the Malchik. So this was pre Edsel's. We the, the whole band went down, and we went to each night, and we were like kids. I mean, we were. I think half of us were old enough to actually be in the ice <laughs> after six o'clock. <laughs> Did you see the documentary on the Nightingales with Rob Lloyd and this? Guy? I haven't. I haven't seen it, but uh, I have heard about it. And, and a, a friend of mine's one of the producers, I think. Right, fire. Records. But I haven't seen it. I've heard it's very good. Is it good? It's, it's amazing. It is. And Stuart Lee holds it together as the narrator, who's chatting to him here and there. But there were stories about him, you know, sort of walking around going, oh, yeah, you know, around the back of a, I suppose, a car park or a sort of car showroom, which was open. He said, oh, yeah, I slept here for, a, you know, a few, a period of time, you know, this yeah, yeah. Night, you know, and just, yeah. It was just you, very... you had to, when we, eventually when we signed, signed to Decoy, that Mega City 4 and, and Census things were on, um, we, would be, we would be doing gigs in London quite often, but we never had anywhere to stay. 
And so we would either sleep in the van or there was two or three people at decoy who were part of the squat scene and there'd be a squat to stay up. And it was, look, we, we would be coming down from London with no, uh, from Leeds to London with no money. And, um, but, but because the, the scene was so kind of interconnected, you could still go out and see bands because they would put you on the guest list. And then if you knew somebody would like, I remember going to see Teenage Fan Club and uh, Boo Radleys and people like that later on. And you would have a bit, you would, they, they, you would meet them backstage and have a drink with them on their rider. And that was kind of the currency. You would share that currency amongst the bands. So yes. it, was, uh, it was a way of surviving without any money. <laughs> I know, because I, I guess it's the classic thing, and you've probably heard this a million times, but you know, I've certainly found out <clears throat> doing this show that most bands have that five-year narrative. And you know, especially in the 80s, but obviously there's in the 90s where you know, they had the 12-month honeymoon period. You know, they get a single, John Peel plays it, oh, get the session, the first album, things yeah. going well. You do the art centres, because every like town and city has an alternative night, don't they? Most on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, yeah. like Norwich, Bristol, you know. You know, you've got the Duchess in Leeds and... and yeah, um, Milk, and all that. yeah. yeah and, and so there's a really great circuit. So that first album and that first tour in The Great Transit is good. And then you get the second album, things are going slightly better, but at the same time, everyone's tired, getting a bit grumpy. And also there's also yeah. still that lack of money, which I think everyone's getting a bit kind <laughs> of like, well, what's happening? There, there is still nothing quite happening. And, and five years is often the period where everyone's a bit shell-shocked. But the other thing I've noticed is that when anyone ever says, oh, we toured America, they often go, and then we broke up. Because America often seems to finish bands off. But you sounded, you sounded like you had quite a good time with your American tour. We, we, well, it was kind of great. Okay, so when the American tour came about because the record that we'd done with Decoy, Decoy had dropped us by this point, um, but it was picked up by a label called Coco Pop that was part of Shimmy Disc. Oh, yes. It was by Kramer in New York. Uh, and um, a fan of the band called Laurie, um, she, she got in touch. I think she sent me a postcard and said, do you want to come and tour America? I can put a three-week tour of the East Coast together and three of the gigs will cover the cost of the tour, like a basic tour. Mm. And... and uh, I'm not sure who, I think maybe Chimmy just must have arranged it, but we said, yeah. And uh, and there was a first gig in New York, uh, at this thing called the New Music Seminar, which is a bit like South by Southwest. And well, there was a warm up in the hills in Poughkeepsie and it was November and it was cold, uh, but we had no money and we had no manager. I mean, I basically managed the band throughout, to be honest, obviously not very well. <laughs> and, and we just said yes. And we basically went through, we went on cheap Aer Lingus tickets with two distortion pedals in our luggage with no guitars. And we borrowed everything when we got there. Um, and we did the show up in Poughkeepsie to 15 people and a dog. And we'd already fallen out with the record label by this point. So we had nowhere to stay when we came back to New York. And we played this show and it was two o'clock in the morning and it was at a place called the Under Acme. I don't know. I don't know where it was. Manhattan <laughs> somewhere. I mean, and this would be 93. And two women came up to me 
um, after the gig and said, oh, my God, that was amazing. And actually, it was a really good gig. I mean, it was packed and we thought we'd be shit, but we were we were really good. Um, and they said, well, we thought you guys were dead. And they were like from L.A. and they were wearing these red satin jackets. And one was about 40 and one was about our age. And how old were we then? Early 20s. And they said, uh, you know, and Laurie said to me, these guys run this record label. And I, and, I, and I said, so what, what's the record? She said, it's kind of the biggest independent record label in America. It's called Alias. I said, oh, okay. I said, who were, who? and then she said, well, American Music Club and Yola Tango on it. I went, okay. Um, and uh, they said, so where are you staying tonight? And we were, I said, we're, we're staying in this little Dodge cruiser outside. And it, was, and it was cold in New York. And they said, oh, come and stay with us. And I said, Okay, and I'm trying to work out, apart from, obviously, there were enthusiastic red coats and there was a Butlins vibe going on, <laughs> what, what this was really about. And I was trying to, you know, did, did they, I couldn't work, it didn't, it just didn't add up, really. Um, because there was no gear to steal, really. We borrowed some guitars, but there was nothing to steal. Anyway, we got into this little Dodge Cruiser and we drove across Manhattan and and we went down some, and they directed us, so they knew the city, and we went down a couple of dodgy back streets, and I'm thinking, well, you know, then we haven't got any money. They, they can't rob us in any way. <laughs> this is either some really weird sort of sex kink thing, or, you know, or, anyway. Then we took a left, and we were on Park Avenue, and it turned out they were staying at the, the Intercontinental. We parked the van in the garage basement thing, got the lift and we got to this floor and the doors opened and there was like this this big room with like a massive fruit bowl in the middle of it and 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 uh, this woman delight jenkins uh who was the boss of this record label said uh we're in this room uh arches of loafer in this room uh small 23 are in here but this one's empty you can have this suite and it was a floor of the hotel and it was warm and it was warm (laughs) and it was fruit uh and 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 we weren't starting the tour of the east coast for another four or five days and they put us up for four or five days in this hotel blimey that is and at the end at the end of it they offered us a half a million dollar record deal oh my god it was like signed I'm not, well, yeah, that would have been a hard one to turn down after the fruit, the bowl of fruit. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Well, after all, yeah, all that. And, and it was, and we had sort of five days in New York where, because if you'd played at the New Music Seminar, you kind of got a pass into any gig. You could, you because you were an art, you were an artist. Mm. Um, we had five days in New York with no money, but they looked after everything. It's fucking brilliant. Best you, time ever. <laughs> well, I, I would imagine that's probably one of the highlights, actually. So then, th- this was because you done. But then we went on tour with no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you play Boston? Boston's always one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played. We played. The last gig was at Boston at the Middle East. Uh, good gig, I seem to recall. I remember they had quite a nice falafel wrap. Just part of, part of the yeah, it's great that you can remember the fruit and the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, times are hard. Well, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm the same, and just heating. You know, I used to sort of stay in some, well, live in some terrible places in my 80s and 90s. You know, and you'd go in someone's house, and you just got 
my God, I can take my coat off and my boots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, this, is, this is what civilization feels like. So when you came to record your sec the second album, yeah. A Good Time Music Of, did you, was this all recorded back in, in Britain? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the half a million dollar deal was a five album deal. Right. And so, and so, and it was on a sliding scale. So there was $10,000 to make the first album. And then it rose to $80,000 by the last album or something like that. Wow. Uh, but, but there was, you know, it was kind of one of those things where if you'd wanted a career, you could have built one. And they paid for the studio. Uh, and we basically, we went into a studio in Huddersfield um, to record the second album. And and that and and at that point, the only way we could survive as a band really was to be on the road um, with a record. And and they offered to pay tour support, which was the holy grail. They offered to pay us to tour the record. And nobody in the band, well, Phil and I were quite happy to go on the road, but um, Aiden and, and Tris didn't want to go on the road in America for like three months, you know. Right. And then kind of got, we kind of got to the point where. Their li everyone's lives had changed, um, mainly children. Uh, children were part of the equation. Yes. Uh, it's... And, and, and so we did the first album. We never toured it. And I ended up going to film school. And that was it, 95? Yeah, that was it. That was the end. Bloody hell. Did you yeah. feel a little bit like, you know, when you were watching Top of the Pops at that point, thinking, God, look at those indie bands who all went to see those... C86 bands in the 80s that could have been us we should be there um no, I, I was disappointed that it hadn't happened for the Edsels in the way that it kind of happened for Pale Saints um but I was kind of done by then I was really tired I'd had terrible stage fright throughout throughout that time mm. um and, and and there's a massive compromise about being in a band and working with four other people and sharing that collaboration and stuff. And sometimes you just need to break. Did you watch so, the Did you watch the Beatles kind of eight hour documentary on uh, Let It Be I, where they were? I haven't watched it yet. I've heard it's wonderful. Um, the only reason why I haven't watched it is because haven't I haven't scabbed a, a Disney Plus subscription yet to yes. watch it. Um, and and I'm actually working on a on a feature film at the moment that's set in the 90s about a black metal band in Norway making their first album. So I've kind of avoided it because I think there's going to be too many reference points. <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of meetings last week and, and people were going, have you seen Have you seen Get Back? I said, no. I said, oh, you've got to see it. I guess I just wondered what your, you know, the process was, you know, when you were recording or, or sort of bringing, you know, music, you know, creating the sort of songs, whether you had a similar way of just sitting there sort of jamming, you know, ideas. Uh, well, no, we didn't really, no. Uh, well, we what we would do, so um, on, on, the, on, the, on the songs that I've given you to drop into oh, yes. this conversation as and when, when it happens, <laughs> um, so something like Place in the Stun, is a four-track demo that we did at Harold Avenue, and it's and it's Aidan and I with uh, a four-track cassette 
thingy that I think we borrowed off Pale Saints, <laughs> probably. Um, and and we would write a song and we would build it up into bits and then we would bring it to the rest of the band early on. And then later on, we would actually just do that in the rehearsal studio, not in a recording studio. And, and you would basically work a song up. Um, but yes, I, I don't think there's... Ever, sometimes you'd have stuff that would come out of... If you were playing live a lot and you were sound checking, you would start writing little ideas and that sometimes play. But we were never good enough musicians to suddenly go, uh, John, listen to this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we weren't... You know, Aidan would, Aiden would write lyrics and bring a, an acoustic version to the house. And, and then we would build a song around it. Or occasionally it would come from us all being in the room together. Yes. Interesting. So it was it was less uh we just weren't good enough musicians to be like that at all. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, there was a, a great deal of industrial endeavor in what we did because we weren't we weren't we were we were retards. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> sorry. Um Musically, we were we were Neanderthal. Well, I think um, yeah, there's a few people. What a member from Big Flame once said, "Well, we couldn't do a cover version because, frankly, that was beyond our ability." To exactly, do. we were very similar. I think <laughs> I think we, we. I remember on that tour of of the East Coast, there was one gig that was supposed to be at this place called the Armory, and it was in a place called Cookville in Tennessee, and we just presumed it was some sort of like new wave club bar it was called the armory no no it was the armory of a marine base that we were playing a gig at and it, this was one of the gigs where we were going to supposedly earn a thousand dollars because there was nothing else to do so people would come and it was in the gymnasium of the marine base and there was no pa we played out of the amps on the floor there was no stage and we thought we 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 this isn't going to happen but but about you know we took something like twelve hundred dollars on the door there were two support bands and we went on stage and started our set uh i was i was a bit drunk but like we were they weren't remotely interested and so aiden started playing the rift of smoke on the water and they went crazy and so then we bumbled our way through half a dozen rolling stones covers and and took the money <laughs> and that was it it was it was disastrous we weren't we you know we were re, we were a proper band in the sense that what we we created came from that that thing as an organism yeah uh, uh, and and that's why live we were good because we were that it, live was real and we weren't musicians really um although we you know Aiden would say that we were a punk band, but we were we were a bit more sophisticated than that. But really, we were a punk band in the sense that we weren't professional musicians. Yeah, um, we took a little thing and took it a long way. I mean, I'm a much better guitar player now, but I don't know whether that's a good thing with regards to being a songwriter. Yes, <laughs> you know? it's quite interesting, isn't it? Really, that that sort of. Yeah, I mean, the classic songs of our time, like Ride a White Swan and stuff, you just think, well, yes, it's not it's not sophisticated, is it? But, my God, it's amazing, really. So yeah, the, exactly. the, the other songs you, you sent through, there was um, It's Gone. So what's yes. what's the story with It's Gone, by the way? 
So, well, it's funny because that's probably the only song. So because you're called C86, that's a song probably from 1986 when we were listening to all of the stuff that went around that scene. Right. And and I actually, about four months ago, I found... There's some still here in the office. Uh, Excellent. I like your office. So this is... So I still have, like, kind of... This is this is the real to real of stuff. So this is, has it got a date on it? And this is Valerie. Twenty fourth of the seventh, eighty eight. Okay. This is Valerie and the Malchicks. This is when the blind hurricane thing. It's, I still have the bloody reel in my in my office. My so God. I actually took not all of them because I couldn't afford to do it. But I there's a guy that I knew, I knew in Newcastle who had a who has a duplication and, and copying company. And he and he basically transferred half a dozen reels to reels for me, which is where some of the stuff has come from that I've given to you. Blimey. That was originally on cassette that then has been transferred back in the day onto quarter inch. Mm-hmm. So it's gone is 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 probably from 1986, maybe 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's is a four-track port studio recording done in the attic of of Aiden and Tom's house. Um oh. And that's really early. But I kind of was listening to it and was thinking, the ideas in this is re- are really nice. Um, and it's a really simple, it kind of has a little, I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but it reminds me of uh, that first Primal Scream single. Velocity Girl. Yeah, is it Velocity, yeah. But just in its brevity, you know, it's something like two and a half minutes long and I'm thinking, Okay, yeah. I mean, there's about five or six songs from that period that I, that I I've only listened to them today because I was going to talk <laughs> to you. Um, and it's like, all oh, right, that you know, for for seventeen, eighteen year olds, it's quite a sophisticated. Aiden was a good songwriter, you know, yeah. and, and actually the band gelled, and and I was quite good at building stuff around what Aiden brought. Um. Did you no, say because you, you said you you know you started you got stage fright was that kind of from the beginning or was that something that just slowly kept creeping in and and got worse as as time uh, no it's something that crept in and got worse um, I mean uh, the 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 big problem for me David was was um, I care I cared too much about it it was really what I wanted to do it was my dream to to you know be on John Peel and make a record and, and stuff like that. And so I, I think I probably put too much pressure on myself and gave too much of a fuck. Um, yes. And and I couldn't perform without without drinking as well, so I don't think that helped. But but it got, the, the stage fright just got, you could, I could have probably got counselling, I could probably get counselling nowadays to, to counteract it, but I actually have not actually been on stage and played guitar apart from at my brother's wedding when I was drunk, and that was 20 years ago. Blimey. Yes, it does kind of, I think, it does happen, and um, it's kind of weird. I must admit, when I get slightly nervous about something, my right arm starts shaking. It's fucking irritating. <laughs> it's like, God wished it wouldn't, you know, and it's like I just get into that emotional state, and it's like, and it's just like, okay, I'm going to have to just think of something else and, you know, have a bit of time. But, yeah, it, it was just... I, 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 I should add though, once I get on stage, that stage fright disappears immediately. It's only before getting on stage. 
There's no nerves once you're on stage. But it did. It, 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 there was no logic to it. So I, when we played at Glastonbury with I was going to ask you, how did you do that? Like, well, it's the thing, like, we did a show at the Crypt in Bradford, which is like maybe 300 people, and I threw up before the gig, and I was terrible. And then we went, travelled down to to Glastonbury, and I think we probably played Glastonbury a couple of days later, and I had no nerves whatsoever before going on stage at Glastonbury. And, I, and and we were kind of we were it was quite we were quite good that day in Glastonbury because we'd be, been on the road for so long. We could, all I could hear was the bass drum. I couldn't hear anybody else on stage. Just the what? beat of the bass drum. <laughs> oh, and the vocal. So I didn't know. That's the only way that I knew where we were in the song. Because the lineups in those days were quite amazing. I can't. I remember there was one which was a bit muddy during that period, and there was one which was incredibly hot, and that was when I think with the Velvet. Well, underground were playing, and I, I remember sort of managing to get conjunctivitis because there's so much dust in the air that my eyes yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of completely went. But I can't remember if that was a. And then it was one year, I think '89, when Suzanne Vega got she was headlining on the Friday or Saturday and got a death threat, which I thought was a bit extreme. Oh, <laughs> Poor old Suzanne. On. Suzanne Vega, man, that's not that's not necessary. Is no, it? I mean, what's she <laughs> ever done? <laughs> <Lovely> songs, <laughs> nice person, nothing wrong with that. I went to Glastonbury, I think, in '98. A pleasure, uh, and it was one of those really muddy ones. Well, I had a good time. Was it when the state was stage was stages were slowly sinking? And I remember sort of for every band we went to go to see, they were like, "Oh, the stage is sinking. We're going to have to. We're not playing at the moment." So, no, I don't think. No, I don't think it was that year. Uh, it was. Let's see. Who did I see? I saw. I saw Gomez, and I saw. I think it was when uh, what's it called? Tony Bennett was headlining. Right. A legend. So a I think legend, right. it, it was, I saw Ben Folds and I saw Lauren Laverne's band, Kanicki. They were northeast and, but it was really muddy. And you actually, you know, I, I had a friend who, who had, who had scored some, um, some dentist's powder and you actually needed, you, you needed, you needed some, some dentist powder to actually just manage to, March through the uh, through the mud. It was that. It was horrible. I uh, yeah, I've done yeah, a few. I've never went back. And 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 this, uh, you know, I much prefer Cambridge Folk Festival to be honest. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> it's it's closer. There's more toilets, and they're closer. I know. Them. I think I did. I mean, just I did go and see Bowie on the Sunday on that two thousand, and we just went. We were just happened to be in the area. We went. Let's see if we were just going to get a ticket and it was like actually there's no fence so let's just go and see Bowie and it was oh absolutely I mean I, I never saw David Bowie so I, I would have loved to have seen him but never happened so then okay so then the the fourth song you put in in this mix is Scratching the Surf so what oh yeah the... yeah yeah that's quite interesting because that's so that's that's kind of so Valerie, so the band originally we were called the Mal Chicks, and then we got banned from playing in Harrogate because of something happened. Something happened. I can't remember. Uh, I don't. I generally can't remember. Uh, and, and there used to be a battle of the bands at Harrogate Theatre, and, and we got banned from it. So we changed the name rather shrewdly, I thought, to Valerie and the Mal Chicks. Um, and. That was the Valerie was uh, the Valerie of the Monkey song, and um, we we put some money together. We found the studio in Leeds that 
kind of liked us and we went in to record three songs and this was quite a good studio um but we didn't i think it would be 1987 um it was certainly a place where i learned a lot and, and the studio there was a toilet in the studio that that was kind of that you couldn't use because henry rollins had recorded there and, and had destroyed it to make some sort of noise for a record he was doing I think it was Henry Rollins. Right. He was around Leeds in that time. It definitely wasn't it definitely it definitely wasn't Iggy Pop because Iggy Pop's blah 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 had come out and the engineer loved the drum sound and and our drum sounded so bad that he sampled the it was a very early sampled snare drum on the recording. And we kind of let him just do it because we didn't know what we were doing. And I was listening back to it today and I thought Okay, this is us trying to write a pop song. Um, and I'd listened to it and I thought, it's actually, I mean, it's, over, it, it, it's kind of, it's not overproduced now, but at the time we thought it was massively over, overproduced, <laughs> how it sounded. Um, but I think it's quite an interesting bench. That was kind of the last, that was the last days of Valerie and the Malchicks. Uh, although we didn't really become the, we were still Valerie and the Malchicks when we did the, the record for the, the three tracks for Egg Records, for Jim Egg Records in Glasgow. Um, and we changed the name when we moved to Leeds, basically. Yes. And because we didn't have a band anymore. <laughs> um, and, and, we, and that was where we wrote Place in the Sun and, and all, most of the stuff for the Peel session, apart from Blind Hurricane. And, and, and we wrote pretty much all the first album. I lived in Leeds for two years and then I moved up to Newcastle where I am now. Um, and uh, all of that, all of that first record came from us sitting in that front room in Leeds in this little back to back. Um, and just, and, and treating it like a job. We did, we would work three, four days a week writing songs. Yes. It's like really a lovely thing to do. Um Although we never had any money, but but it was but it was it was it, you know we were we were going to give it a really we were going to give it a, a really good go before we were twenty one I think we were thinking I think and it, yes it happened much sooner and and by the time I was twenty one I was knackered I mean like that was when I left the Pale, Pale Saints um, and I was in a way all my dreams had come true and and I'd also got this fucking terrible stage fright. And that was it. That so ninety five was when you did your Ziggy Stardust. That just yeah, that was that was that was the end. That was that was. Did did, did the band? Did you have a moment together? You know, in a, in a in a pub and say, look, this is going to be. We, we did a gig. We played a gig. There was a young pr uh, promoter who wanted to put us on at the cockpit in Leeds, and the record had just come out. And we said, well, we I said we we can't release the record and not do a lead show. So we did the lead show, um, and at this point, I was at Newcastle Polytechnic studying film production, and they'd offered me the chance to go to Toronto to study uh, in the September of that year. And as there was no tour booked in, nobody wanted to tour the UK. Nobody wanted to certain no, certainly nobody wanted to tour America. Um, they said they'd pay for a video, which which we made, but nobody ever saw. 
and um, we had that. We did that last gig, and we kind of knew that was the last gig. Yes. So, so it wasn't in a pub. It wasn't. It was actually we played live together for a last time, and that was it. That's kind of beautiful. That's that's a nice yeah. way to go. It's nice that we did a gig. We you know, and it was a good gig, uh, and it was sad. Um, I mean, the thing is that the Edsels were were just a they were a really good live band when they were good. I mean, half the time they were kind of awful, and you know it would be literally a really great gig, a really average gig. Um, but we were built for playing live, really. Yes, and that and we spent all our time trying to create recordings that somehow captured that, but never actually captured that feeling of the band live. Um, I remember playing a gig at the Jericho Tavern, and it was like, I think, I think, uh, I think some of the kids who ended up being ride were there, and I think some of the kids from Radiohead were there, and it was just one of those gigs where we were just brilliant. Um, and years later, I heard from the promoter at the Jericho Tavern that he thought they had selection with the best live band he'd ever seen. God, that <laughs> was nice. that night. <laughs> nice accolade. So, did you then have to tell your, you know, America label that that was? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Was that a kind of a it, tough it, moment? Uh, I, I think they still might own the rights to my firstborn. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it because it in those days there wasn't that ease of communication it wasn't that, that complicated and because the deal was five albums over 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 the half a million dollars we'd only taken ten thousand dollars off them to make the record right, yeah so they didn't lose out i mean and they've never paid me any money back although they have made everything available on spotify etc <laughs> <laughs> over the years I, we've never seen any money from any of the recordings we've ever made right but you know, you, you chalk that one down to experience, don't you? Yes, and I guess that's that's the way it kind of runs, really. Yeah. So did you, I mean, just briefly, I mean, did sort of doing the film school, doing going to film college, was that kind of just a really nice thing to quickly move into, just to... Uh... No, 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 no. I, I, try, I, I, I was making films when I was in the bands, but um, I tried to get into film school in about, when I was about 22, and, and they weren't, they told me to, to go away. Um, and so, and, and I only, I only fell in love with cinema when I moved to Leeds and lived so close to the Hyde Park picture house, right. which used to be kind of 50p to go and see a film on a Monday or Thursday or Thursday. And I started to see kind of classic uh, cinema and right. it's a stupid, stupid thing to chase. I mean, ultimately, you know, you decide you want to direct films and that's, that's madness to be honest. Um, so much more difficult than trying to make records, and that was hard enough. Right. Uh, uh, so, so I'm still, in a way, that idea that I had at 21, 22 was, which was, I can't really play live anymore. If I make a film, I don't have to go out and perform it every night, um, which is what you have to do when you make a record, uh, or it was. Right. And, and so, I'm still chasing that now. You know, and it, I'm 53 now, so what's that? The last 32 years, I'm, I've, I've been chasing this kind of ephemeral thing that is me making cinema. And I don't think, I don't think you ever catch it. Uh, you know, I've made a couple of movies and stuff like that. Um, and I've been, I've had films at, at festivals that were, you know, I've had a film at Tribeca in New York and stuff. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it feels a bit like being 17 and trying to get a band off the ground nearly all time. God. <laughs> oh, well. <Just> exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Cheesy, crazy. And I think on that bombshell, we'll leave it as part two. But don't worry, part three is going to be appearing very soon. Anyway, that was uh, me in conversation with Ashley Horner from the Edsel Auctioneer. And um, yes, if you want to contact me for some nice but random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Yes, keep it positive, otherwise don't listen. And um, yes, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? So find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, do C86 Show. Anyway, look. I know, the excitement, part three, I'll put it up tomorrow. Anyway, there you go.